we're going to get started in our study today, and uh, that was amazing. One of the things that I love about this is that when we say dismiss the children's ministry, half of our church gets up and leaves. I love that. Um, not that half the people leave. <laughs> I mean, people are saying, well, maybe we should all go. No. <laughs> Father in heaven, we love you so much. So thankful, Lord, to see these kids up there. If we give them one thing in this life, Jesus. If we get one thing in this church, Jesus. It's all about you. It always has been. It always will be. We pray, Father, that that is so evident as we continue focusing on the events surrounding the birth of our Savior, and that you would just bless this time. Teach us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten words that start off one of my favorite stories of all time. Very intentional they were when they wrote them. These ten words... A long time ago, ten words. As a seven, as a six-year-old in a movie theater in May 1977, uh, I went to see Star Wars, and it was a story of an unlikely character that was looking out at the horizon, wondering if there could possibly be more for his life. What is the meaning? What is the purpose? This unlikely character is called on a journey against uh, evil forces, the likes of which he himself won't be able to overcome. As a six-year-old, watching the effects, watching the story play out, it was actually pretty amazing. But I have to be very honest with you. Thursday night at 10 p.m., Having a ministry that we do in North Florida, I was compelled to drive into Valdosta, Georgia to see the end of the story uh, at 10 o'clock and feeling like a little kid in a movie theater sitting there with my popcorn, ready to see how the story ends. And uh, this is how it ends. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But, <laughs> but watching this play out, can you imagine that? I mean, how many stories do we, do we have the opportunity in this lifetime to watch play out, you know, via film over 40 years? It's pretty unique for our lifetime to watch something play out over the course of 40 years. And it's a pretty epic story. But they all, all of these wonderful stories just point to the greater story. Even that is part of the plan. That's our series. It's all part of the plan. This is all part of the plan part two. And, our story starts off with ten words that are more compelling. And what you believe about these ten words determines what you do and what you see in this earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here's the thing. You know how that story ends because you have this book. And the more we get to know this book, the more we see that everything that God has done through the course of history has been part 
surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, the more we look from Genesis on to Revelation, the more we see that all of history has really pointed towards this. And so I want you to walk away with two simple things today. Two simple things. If you walk away from this message, what I want you to walk away with is this. is One, when you see how his plan unfolds in this world, then you're going to have confidence that his doubt. That's the first thing. When you see how his plan unfolds, how intricate it is and how it always works out, then you'll, you'll have confidence that God's plan is always the one that works. But the other thing is this, that what we'll see when we look through these passages today, we'll see that the people that God uses will give us confidence that there's one more invitation into his work, and that invitation is for you. All that will be left at the end is a question in each of our lives that says, whose plan are you part of right now? Living out your plan, or is it his plan? And if you're living out your plan, then the only question is, is that how's that working out for you? So, we take a look. In your Bible, you have, uh, you have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. Okay? From Genesis to Revelation, and the Old Testament pretty much tells us about the creation, the fall of man, God's calling of a nation, that nation's disobedience. But throughout the Old Testament, what we see is that their disobedience to the law, it points to their need for a greater agreement between mankind and God. It points to the need for a new covenant. And so through the Old Testament, what you also have are pictures, promises, and you have prophecies of Jesus. Now again, it's never mentioned, but you can really see everywhere, even at the fall of man, when the man and the woman are placed in the garden, you can see that they're given a choice. It's Genesis 3.15. After they blow it, there's a promise of the Savior. Jesus is right here. Let me read it for you. Some have called this the gospel of Genesis. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you look in the middle of 15 where it says, and between your seed and her seed, you'll see the last seed, the second seed that's mentioned, is mentioned in capital letters. And there is a reason for this. The seed that it's talking about is Jesus coming to give us victory. And so there we see the promise of Jesus. But then later in the book, in Genesis 12, God calls this man named Abraham. Now he calls Abraham and he says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And when he says, well, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. What is that a promise of? It's a promise of the gospel through a man named Abraham. He's called the father of our faith. But as the father of our faith, you would expect, well, the father of our faith raises the bar up here, and in so many ways he does, but not always. The father of our faith is an imperfect man, and at one point, he's afraid of a pharaoh, and he says, listen, my wife is my sister. But God uses Abraham, and he's the father of our faith. He also uses for Abraham named Noah. And Noah is called to build and deliver his family out of the flood. Noah is righteous in his generation, and God uses Noah in a mighty way. But after Noah gets off the ark, he builds an altar, and then he gets bombed. 
All right, he gets inebriated as soon as he gets off. He gets drunk and naked after he gets off the ark. So you've got this plan working it. So you've got God preserving a family despite a worldwide flood. You've got him calling a man named Abraham, who's the father of our faith. Then you know the story of Moses. And Moses is used in a mighty way to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt at 80 years old. And Moses becomes a deliverer. All through all these stories, through Moses, through Joseph, through David, through all of the Old Testament, you get these pictures and these promises of a Savior that's, and it's all part of a plan. And when you look at it and you say, listen, the whole thing has been working out exactly the way that God orchestrated throughout all of history. But all that he's using. See, it goes with, with the two things that we want to illustrate. And that one is that through God's plan, we can have confidence his plan has always worked out and will always work out. But also the people he uses should give us confidence that no matter who's walked into this room today, God can use you. And he desires to use you as part of a plan that has been playing out from the beginning and that will extend into all of eternity. So you see the, the history of the children of Israel in the Old Testament too. Now, they start this cycle where God blesses them and he shows his favor to them. And this might sound a little bit like our life sometimes. Where he blesses them, then they disobey him, they go about doing things their own way, then he disciplines them, then they repent, then he blesses them, and you have this cycle uh, throughout the Old Testament until God eventually removes his favor from the children of Israel. Here's what you see in the meantime. That through that cycle, he sends men all prophets. And these prophets, through very dark times, usually when the king sees them coming, they see the prophets coming as part of the plan, that these kings that have turned to idolatry, the prophets of God come before them and they say, okay, listen, God's judgment is coming, but through these messages of judgment, what you also see are pictures of hope. And examples in the book of Isaiah. And you don't have to turn there, but I'll read just a couple of the things that Isaiah says about the birth of a Savior. Again, this is all playing out exactly as God orchestrated. It's Isaiah 7.14. Hundreds of years before the Messiah comes, Isaiah 7.14 says this, and you've heard this verse, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's right there in Isaiah. A little further in Isaiah, you go to chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what you have, again, pictures, promises, prophecies, as everything is working out exactly the way that God designed it, despite the fact that he chose the children of Israel, they disobeyed him, but his plan is still working out. So much so that there's one book of history in the Bible called Esther. You've heard of it? And if you're familiar with the book of Esther, it's very interesting and very intriguing because it's only one of two books in the Bible where the name God is not mentioned. And there's a reason for this. Well, the name of God is not mentioned in this book of history. It's the last book of history in the Old Testament. It's the last history. God is not mentioned. But using a Jewish he preserves the children of Israel from complete annihilation by using a Jewish 
unlikely of characters, putting her in a particular set of circumstances for a moment such as this. Do you see? Because if anything illustrates the fact that God is working through history using unlikely people, but yet his plan is playing out perfectly, my question to you is this, where is your part in this plan? And some of you are sitting here saying, I don't know, Pastor. I'm really still trying to figure that out. How do I figure that out? Here's how you figure it out. You worship him. You celebrate him. This whole plan to send his son was designed for one reason. It wasn't because of your money. Because of your money. This whole plan was orchestrated because he desired a relationship with you. And that he has a plan for your life that was designed before time began. And if anything, we should sit here and I hope, to, I hope that blows your mind. And I hope it compels you to say, you know what? Maybe the plans that I've have not necessarily worked out because I never went to him in the first place. But maybe if we wipe the slate clean and say, God, why don't you crush our plans so that your plan for our life can go forth? And you would say, but I'm afraid to do that because I got some pretty decent plans. You might. But let me tell you something. His plan is... I love Esther because it kind of transitions into a period where God seems to be silent. It's what we call the intertestamental... And we're incredibly silent, just like he is in the book of Esther. No prophets are speaking, no word is being written during that time. It's about 400 years of silence. And what creating spiritual vacuum, yet God is still working obviously. And he's using the likes of men that have nothing to do with him, like Caesar Augustus and Alex. He's using all these into places so that when he reemerges onto the scene, that we can see that he speaks even. The application for you, I think, is really, really important. Because as we're talking about the fact that God's plan is always working out, it's always working out even when it's silent. In your life right now, maybe somebody's saying, you know what, I don't hear you. I don't feel you. I don't see you. But according to the word that we have in front of us, does that mean that God's not working? Absolutely not. Everything is being positioned just as he planned from the beginning of time and for all of eternity. But Pastor, God is silent. He doesn't have to be. He can always be speaking to you as long as you have his word in front of you. For some of you, the problem is this. He seems silent because he might not be telling you what you would like to hear. I mean, is that even possible? Sometimes we're looking for God to do something but it's during those moments of silence. I mean, they're epic in the Bible. Think about it. The children of Israel are enslaved for hundreds of years by Egypt. Seems like God is silent. 400 years between the finish of the Old Testament and the events of the New Testament. Seems like God is silent. But listen. In the garden, when Jesus is praying, not as I will, Father, but as you will, kind of seems like God is silent. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Seems like he's silent. We wouldn't be here today if he was silent. It's at those times it seems like the silence is deafening. 
but at those times he's speaking sometimes more powerfully than if he were to appear by a burning bush or sending an angel to you. Yes, God speaks during his silence. So you have the events of the Old Testament, you have the history, you have the prophecy, you have the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but then you have something else that's kind of mind-blowing. And it's as you uh, turn to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, what you have here is a family tree of Jesus. And if ever we were to see God connecting the dots through history and using imperfect people to do it, it's right here. The evidence is right here in the book of Matthew, because as you look at Jesus' family tree, you would expect it to be the who's who, the best of the best, but sometimes what it reads like is the people that were least likely to succeed. That's what I would have been voted in high school. Somebody least likely to succeed. Come on. (laughs) You should have went to high school with me. (laughs) Listen, in this genealogy, we're not going to go through it exhaustively, but I do want you to look at a, a name here in the uh, in verse 5. As part of Jesus' genealogy, he claims to have a lady named Rahab. Are you familiar with Rahab? Rahab was a Gentile prostitute who hid two spies. So she was a Gentile prostitute who lied to save the spies. She's in his genealogy. That guy Abraham, who lied about his wife, well, He's in the genealogy. David, who was a giant killer, yes, but also a murderer and an adulterer, in the genealogy. He's in the genealogy. There's a woman named Tamar who seduced her father-in-law by pretending to be a prostitute, and she was a Gentile too. Do you see this? It's all in the genealogy. It's all in the family tree. Who's in your family tree? Because let me tell you who else is in Jesus' family tree. How do we say it in Florida? Y'all. Y'all. As long as you went to the cross and you repented of your sins and you became a child of God, he took the people that had the resumes that other people would have shredded. He had the resumes that everybody else would have said, I don't, no way. All right? <laughs> if I was submitting my resume to be pastor and I put my history on there, all right, most people would have said, yeah, no, no. No. You know? But God is the one that takes the thing, and then this is your, your whole faith is built on this. Your whole faith is built on this, that it's the stone that the builders rejected that became the chief cornerstone. All right? That's God's plan working itself out through history. And there you have it, right there in the genealogy. If you go through that genealogy and you look at some of these names and you could say, God used them, then maybe what you'll stop and say is, yeah, I think God can use me. God can use me. So he uses the family tree. And the people in that family tree are people that you would probably never expect. But not only does he use the family tree, let's go over to the book of Luke right now. And we're going to see events unfold as been silent for so long, how he emerges on the scene. We'll see in Luke chapter 1, verse 5 going to send a forerunner to Jesus. You know him as to be John the Baptist. So before the angels come talking about Jesus, it says Luke 1, chapter 5, uh, Luke 1, verse 5, sorry, it says, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was 
one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child. Listen, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. So you see that and you say, well, who does that remind us of? They were older, they were past that. Okay, Abraham and Sarah, right? And so what you see is, wow, there's another connected dot. You can connect this to history, that there's a reason that you're told that Abraham and Sarah are barren because it's kind of a foreshadowing of something that's happening here. That's very interesting. So now, who is God using to enact his plan? An aged priest and his wife. A priest, a religious figure. The people that Jesus would rail against the most. That's who he's using. Do you see all the different people that God uses? Shepherds and uh, and then through, through the rest of the Old Testament, Jewish orphans. And here he has a priest and his wife, and they're elderly. It says, verse 8, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Stop right there. Look at who else God is using to bring forth his plan in this world. Angels. Angels. You want to see something really? Angels. Look at Daniel 9 and Daniel 10. We're not going to go there. We don't have time to do it today. God's word is absolutely amazing and it's beautiful and it's stunning because it paints such a beautiful picture of the things that God does and the way that God works. Hey, God heard your prayers. Zacharias and Elizabeth. There was a longing in your heart and that longing was placed there for a reason because it was meant to bring you to prayer. All right. A lot of the times, and we said this last week, but we'll reiterate it again because it's simply worth it. A lot of the times, we're looking for a miracle, and God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you. You ready for it? It's called prayer. Prayer is a miracle because we can talk to a holy God, and we were able to do that by the fact that he sent his son Jesus to repair the lines of communication on the cross. But here's the other thing. When you take a look at the fact that God's Man, I would fix this. If I could fix this, I would move heaven and do it. You ever said that? Guess what God's saying right here? He's moving heaven and earth for a plan to save you by bringing his son. That's what we see when we see the angels partaking in this plan. And when you pray, guess what? Angels are dispatched. Don't believe me. Look to the word of God. It says here battling flesh and blood. It says here that you're battling principalities and powers. And God has ordained that your prayers would be part of a plan to change things no matter who you are. When you align yourself with the person of God and the will of God and the plan of God. This is a big deal. Because I'm missing the plan of God because we're not on our faces. Listen. I would ask you and take a survey in here. I'm sure every single one of you would say, I don't want to miss anything that God has for me in this life. Life to the full, abundant life, like God promises. Fullness of joy. 
the peace that surpasseth understanding, unconditional love. I want these things. That's the things that are promised. Are you praying? Are you spending time? We ask if you have a healthy life. How do you know if you have a healthy prayer life? Because you don't have to pray. You get to pray. I get to just sit here and talk with him. And so he's using an aged priest, a barren woman, giving us a picture of the Old Testament. Remember the two things that I said that I wanted you to walk away with, and I pray to God that his plan has always been working out, so his plan will But two, when you see the people he uses and how he uses them, that there's a role in this story too. Now we talked a little bit about Caesar Augustus last week and how God used Caesar and how God used Herod. But let's turn over to the book of Luke right now, over to chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 26. Sorry about that. Chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. So now it was a Jewish orphan. He's using shepherds. He's using angels. He's using aged priests. He's using a teenage girl. But when she saw him, verse 29, she was troubled at the saying and considered what manner of greeting is this. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, it's pretty interesting because from this point, Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who was barren. You want to see who else is part of the plan? This is kind of cool. All right, it's verse 41. It says, And it happened when Elizabeth heard so Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and you know the, the cousins are together, and it says, And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leapt in her womb, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So God even uses the baby that is in the womb. All right? So you have all ages. You have the things of heaven. You have the things of earth all coming together in God's great plan. Go over to chapter 2 of, of the book of Luke. And it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Quirinius was governing Syria. All went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee. He's a blue-collar worker, Joseph the carpenter, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, 
the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, here's the thing. The innkeeper always gets a bum rap. All right, everybody says, the innkeeper shut him out. He's like the greedy landlord. And what we see is the cigar-chopping innkeeper turning away uh, Jesus. No, he did, had no idea that it was Jesus. All right, cut the guy some slack just for a half a minute, okay? Uh, but here what you do see as part of the plan is this. You have the most powerful man in the world ordering a census to rearrange everybody just to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of Micah. Caesar thinks he's in control. God's going like this. Okay. Let's see. Let's see how that works. You see? You have Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. And then you have a baby that's born that changes everything. And this is all part of the plan. It's part of the plan for God to send his son as a baby. For God to come as a baby, the most helpless of all creatures that is going to have to be changed, that is going to have to be fed, that's going to have to learn how to walk, that's going to have to learn how to talk. And because of this baby, this is going to change everything. Because here's who's going to be invited into this plan. And it starts right off the bat. Look at verse 8 here. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the, ro- of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in a swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Stop right there. From the very beginning, God calls, of all the people that the announcement, the birth announcement could have been made to, who does he call? Shepherds. Maybe society would be surprised but they should have never been if they were familiar with the word because it seems like he was always using shepherds, doesn't it? Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David, all shepherds that God used. And now again, he calls the shepherds first. Why does he call the shepherds first? Because the sheep are important. Because the Bible says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way, but he's laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And that's the beginning of his plan rolling out, extending into the church today, and more unlikely people being called. And Jesus, he pulls no punches wherever he goes. He's, he's calling the fishermen. You're calling fishermen? Call them fishermen, yeah. Tax collectors, but they're sinners. So are you. They're sinners, prostitutes. A man like Saul of Tarsus, the always of the people completely rejected god there's a place for you there's a plan for you it's my plan it's always working out it's the best story it's the story that every other story points to because there's a longing in your heart for the hero to come and he has and he's coming again that's the story As I was writing this, one of the things that um, came to my mind was a movie that just came out. 
Not Star Wars. There's a movie that came out a while ago, and it's loosely, I have to say loosely, based on uh, the life of P.T. Barnum. It's called The Greatest Showman. After a rocky first attempt at drawing crowds to the Museum of Oddities, if you think Ripley's Believe It or Not, you'd get it, and a little inspiration for his daughters, P.T. Barnum starts posting ads calling for unique persons who would audition to become part of what was beginning its transition from museum to a live variety show. Among the unique persons to join Barnum's team of performers, a bearded lady, an abnormally tall man, an African-American brother and sister team who were trapeze artists, and many others. What they all had in common, these people who were not accepted or valued by the society they were in. They were considered outcasts, people who should be hidden, people not to be associated with or loved because of their unusual features, unusual talents, or even their They were people the culture said you should divide yourself from instead of reaching out to because they're not like you. Barnum valued the people on the fringes of society and brought them into a family. He saw the gifts in them overlooked by others He gave them a platform for purposeful service that brought meaning, not just to their own lives, but to the lives of others as well. He challenged the norm and said that you can't value or have meaningful relationship with people who are different from you. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Right? Right? Because it doesn't matter if you're a shepherd or if you're a king. Doesn't matter if you are. If you're a musician, if you're, if you're a book, if you're an adulterer, there's a place for you when somebody repents and comes to the cross and acknowledges that Jesus Christ is the Lord of their life. That's what this plan is all about. You don't have to be part of it. You get to be. If you respond to the call. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Matthias to come up and play a little bit. I'm going to ask you all to stand. Uh, are we singing? Yeah. I am set free. Lord, I need you. I'm so free. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with the Lord, I don't want to do anything simple as we have always called an altar call before. If you're somebody in this room today and you acknowledge, hey, you know what? I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. And you want a relationship with God. A relationship. What that means is this. It's not a matter of just coming up and saying a prayer and repeating a prayer after a pastor. It is a matter of saying, listen, I want him to be the Lord of my life. I've been Lord of my life to this point, but I want him to be Lord. I want him to be the God of my life. I want to stop calling the shots, and I want him to. If you want a real relationship with God, then that's what this call is for.
It's a call for people that are saying, you know what? I don't think that this is an amazing plan, and I don't know that I'm part of it. You become part of it by repenting of your sins and asking him to take over. Not just saying, I'm sorry, and maybe periodically I'll come to church. That's not it. It's a matter of saying, okay, I'm done doing it my way. I'm yours. Every bit of me is yours. The call to follow Jesus, it's not a, as we've so often said in the church, it's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's a live-life-to-the-fullest invitation. But that only comes when a man or a woman dies to themselves. And so that explains you, and you're like, you know what, I need to die to myself. And I want that relationship. If you want that relationship, then as we sing this song, come on up and let's pray.